The sermon this morning comes from Micah chapter 6, verse 8. He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Uh, thank you, Eric. Uh, good morning, everyone, and welcome to uh, Risen. I'm Pastor Rich, and it's good to see all of you today. Um, today, we're actually wrapping up our sermon series through our core values. Uh, the past two months, we have went over uh, each core value, and uh, we sort of talked about what it means, uh, why it matters, and, and how to execute it. How do we go about uh, fulfilling this core value in our church? And today, we're going to take a look at our last core value, and that is justice and compassion. You know, if you read the Bible, you'll see that the Bible is a book devoted to justice and compassion from the first to the last. Uh, this is because the God of the Bible is a God of justice and compassion. And so, you know, as we were uh, coming together, as the core team was coming together to plant this church, and we're thinking about what, what eight things do we want to be identified by what eight things does God identify himself with, um, you know, we could not neglect this aspect of justice as com- justice and compassion. It's, a, it's not a peripheral thing. It's central to God. It's, it's, it's central to his word and, and therefore uh, his church and our church here at Risen. So we're going to take a look at four things today. We're going to take a look at first the definition of justice, and then we're going to take a look at the reason for justice, And then thirdly, we will take a look at the work of justice, how to go about this. And then lastly, we're going to take a look at the power for justice, the power for justice. So first, uh, the definition of justice. In our passage today, uh, Micah 6 verse 8 gives us a summary of how God wants us to live. To walk humbly is to know God relationally, uh, intimately, personally, and to be attentive to and follow what he wants and desires and loves uh, in this world. And then in our text, Micah tells us how to do this, how to walk humbly in two simple ways. He summarizes what the Christian life, about, Christian life is all about, walking humbly with God, and then he breaks it down. He says, to walk humbly is to do justice and to love kindness. Right? The term for kindness here is the Hebrew word for kesed, which means God's unconditional grace and his unconditional compassion. And the word for justice here is the Hebrew word mishpat, and its most basic meaning is to treat people fairly, to treat people equitably. And we see this in Leviticus chapter 24, verses 20, verse 22, and this is what it reads. God tells his people in Israel, you shall have the same rule for the sojourner and for the native, for I am the Lord your God. Therefore, in Micah chapter 6, verse 8, Kesed puts the emphasis on the heart disposition, right? Towards the vulnerable, to love kindness, to want to do this, to have the compassion and the desire and the impulse to love kindness. And Mishpat puts the emphasis on the action, do justice, right? Out of this compassion, out of this kindness, go do justice, Therefore, to walk with God is out of compassion and love, out of kesed, to do justice, to do mishpat. But if you study the scripture a little bit more uh, deeply, justice doesn't just mean fairness and impartiality. It also means to give people their rights. Uh, Proverbs 31 verse 9 says this, Defend the rights of the poor and the needy. 
So mishpat then means uh, not just giving people what they do in regards to punishment, but it also means giving people what they do in regards to protection, in regards to care. You know, God knows that there's a, uh, a great propensity for us in society to uh, neglect providing this aspect of justice, providing the protection and support to the poor and needy. And therefore, if you look at every place that this word for justice, mishpat, is used in the Old Testament, several classes of persons continually come up over and over again. Right? Zechariah chapter 7, verses 9 to 10 says this, Thus says the Lord, render true justice, it's the word mishpat there, and show kindness, the word kesed there, to one another. Do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, or the poor. You see, over and over again, God's justice is identified with taking up the cause of the widows, of orphans, of foreigners, of the poor. Right? Today, this would include the homeless, the trafficked, uh, single parents, the marginalized. You see, according to the Bible, the justice of a society is evaluated by how we treat these four groups. Right? God says if we're not giving justice to these four groups of people, we are not being a just society. And so any neglect to the needs of these members of these groups is not just a lack of awareness. It's not just a lack of compassion, God says it's a violation of justice, right? Deuteronomy chapter 10, verses 17 to 19, God tells this to Israel, he says, for the Lord your God is the great, the mighty, and the awesome God. Why does he say he is the great, the mighty, and the awesome God here? Is he saying because I've created this world out of nothing? Is it because he says I've, I've parted the Red Sea for you? No, he says because I am not partial. And I don't take bribes. He says I am mighty, I am great, I am awesome because I execute justice for the fatherless. I execute justice for the widow. I love the sojourner. I give him food for clothing. And so he says, therefore, love the sojourner, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. In this passage, it's really amazing that God is introducing himself to his, his people. He's reintroducing himself throughout scripture to his people as a God that is identified with these four people. You know, when I guest speak, people ask me, hey, how do you want to be introduced? You know, um, and I just say, just introduce me as, you know, Pastor Rich. I'm a, you know, pastor at Risen Hayward. And there's more to me than being a pastor, of course, right? But th that's the main thing I do um, in my time. It, it's pastoring. And so this is what God is saying. He's saying, hey, when you introduce me, introduce me as a father to the fatherless, a defender of widows, a lover of sojourners, a provider for the poor, because that's that's what I'm about. That's the main thing I do. He identifies with the powerless. God takes up their cause. And, and clearly we see all throughout the Old Testament how God injects this concern for justice into the very heart of Israel's worship and into the very heart of their community life, into the very heart of their judicial system, into the very heart of their relationships, their families. Israel was charged to create this culture of justice for the poor and vulnerable because it was the way that they would reveal God's glory and character to the world. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 5 to 8 says this. 
See, I have taught you justice. Keep it and do it, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of all people, who, when they hear all this justice, will say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has justice so righteous as I set before you today? Isn't that beautiful? God is saying, when you execute justice by not only punishing uh, you know, the wrong, but, but looking after the poor and the vulnerable, people will look at you and say, what a great nation. Who can be just like this? You know, when Christians were uh, a small foreign minority in the Roman Empire, uh, their compassion to the poor evoked great respect from the society of Rome. In 360 AD, um, the Roman Emperor Julian, uh, he's, he was very famously known for despising the Christian faith because it pulled uh, his people away from their Roman gods, from their Roman culture. And so he wrote uh, how Christianity was growing among his people because their generosity to the poor made it so attractive to the human soul. And, and this is what he writes here uh, in this ancient text that archaeologists have discovered. Nothing has contributed to the progress of the religion of the Christians as their kindness to strangers. While those who belong to us look in vain for the help that we should render them, the Christians provide not only for their own poor, but for ours as well. It's a beautiful testimony uh, when people are able to walk humbly with God, to show kindness, to do justice. So that's the first thing we learn about justice in the Bible is that God loves and defends those uh, with the least economic and social power. That's, that's what it means to do justice. But let's, let's take a look at the second point, why we do justice, the reason for justice, right? You know, when we think of justice, uh, we think it of it in legal terms, right, in judicial terms, um, in sort of uh, impartiality. Um, and that is what justice is in its most objective sense. But when you look at scripture, you notice that biblical justice is, is deeply personal. You know, when people say, hey, it's nothing personal, it's business, right? God is saying, no, justice is deeply personal right? It's deeply relational. It's deeply interwoven into our heart and into our soul and into our daily lives. Uh, in, in the Bible, that word mishpat refers to day-to-day -day living in which a person conducts all the relationships, right? In, in, in their family, at their work, right? With strangers, with their enemies, with fairness, generosity, and equity. Every single relationship is, is, is supposed to be uh, personally just, a great example of this is Job. Uh, the book of Job in the Old Testament is a biographical account of Job that uh, took place around 600 BC. And in Job 1, Job is introduced as a just man who feared God. Right? Later we find out he was actually a judge. Uh, but uh, Job 1, verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 1 says this, There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright. Right? one who feared God and turned away from evil. But Job was also extremely wealthy. Uh, in verse 3, it says this, He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 1,000 oxen, 500 donkeys, and many, many servants, so that he was the greatest of all the people to the east. Right? So he's wealthy. But the Bible says he's just. 
and that Job 31 is sort of illustrates for us how Job wasn't just just because that was his job as a judge. He was just because he was deeply personally connected to his people. Right? This is what Job 31 says. I cut out some verses just to shorten it, but this is what he says. If I have rejected the cause of my manservant or my maidservant when they brought a complaint against me, what then shall I do when God rises up? Amazing, right? He's, a, he's like the judge and, you know, or at, at his home, he's got servants and, you know, when usually an employee complains, you can't get a hearing. He's saying, look, if someone complains and I, and I don't listen, what will I do when God, God, God calls me to answer? When he makes inquiry of what I shall answer him, did not he who made me in the womb make him? And did not he fashion us in the womb? If I have withheld anything that the poor desired or have caused the eyes of the widow to fail or have eaten my morsel alone and the fatherless has not eaten of it, if I have seen anyone perish for lack of clothing or the needy without covering, if I have raised my hand against the fatherless because I had power in court, then let my shoulder blade fall from my shoulder and let my arm be broken from its socket. For I was in terror of calamity from God and I could not have faced his majesty." This also would be an iniquity to be punished by the judges, for I would have been false to God above. You see, Job is getting deeply involved in the life of the poor, the widow, the orphan. And he does this because in verse 15, um, he says this, Did not he who made me in the womb make him? And did not one fashion us in the womb? What Job is touching upon is uh, the scripture's teaching that all men and women are created equal by their creator in his own image. You see, in the same way that our children bear our own image physically, uh, even mentally and emotionally and spiritually, the Bible teaches that we all bear in some ways the beauty, the dignity, and, and the sacredness of God so that every human life is sacred and every human being has dignity you see friends when God put his image upon us we became beings of infinite and inestimable value therefore the image of God carries with it the right to not be harmed the right to not be mistreated according to the Bible all human beings have this right have this worth you know if you're uh, a leader um, at work or a parent or you've ever been a coach you know of, of sport or a class a teacher or, or some kind of facilitator or organizer the one thing right the one thing that drives you crazy and the one thing that breaks your heart is is when your own fight against each other right uh, you not only see this as an offense to their own dignity, it's like, why are you guys, man, how can you say that to each other? How, how can you do that to each other? But you also see it as a disregard to all your efforts to love and support and sacrifice for your group, right? And very much in the same way, we, we have to treasure each and every being, human being and not only a way of showing due respect for each other, but also for the respect and glory of our creator, of our, of our owner, of our God. And so you see in our first two points, we've sort of laid out these biblical foundations for what justice is, right? It's to be impartial. Um, it's to be uh, equitable. It's to, 
uh, give people their God-created rights. We've talked about why we do justice, because it's deeply personal, because we're also made in God's image, and therefore we are God's children, and therefore we are brothers and sisters with each other. You know, when I, you know, when Jen and I get into a fight, um, you know, uh, and, 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 you know, we're sort of reflecting, you know, we'll, we'll realize, you know, um, we're first and foremost brothers and sisters in Christ. And therefore we owe it to each other the dignity that God wants us to give to one another. And it's, it's a constant reminder that that, that that justice is the primary justice before our internal or subjective justice. So those are the first two things we've taken a look at, the sort of basic biblical foundations of what justice is and why we do justice. But let's, let's just take a look at how we can go about doing it, right? That was very high level. Uh, well, let's take, a, let's take a look at the details here. Right? There are all sorts of ways we can go about doing justice. Um, I know a friend of mine, you know, he, he, he uh, went to a prestigious law school, uh, got, a, got a phenomenal job in New York City, living, living the life. Um, but he noticed that a lot of the people that he was working for uh, were of uh, extraordinary means. And a lot of the people uh, that needed his help could not afford it. And so he switched careers. And, you know, he dedicated most of his life uh, to doing pro bono, right? He, he, he did cases to pay the bills, but, you know, he would then, after he had what he needed, he... He did a lot of pro bono cases. You see, there are all sorts of ways we can go about doing justice. Not all of us is called to do that. Um, but even now, you know, just living here in the Bay Area, you know, we, let's speak in our context here and let's keep it on, the spotlight on us here. If we don't, we don't, we don't have to look too hard uh, for opportunities to do justice. Uh, whether it's where we live, where we work, where we go to church, where we leisure, eat, or drive by, the opportunity is never lacking. John Perkins is an author, he's a philosopher, he's also a community developer and pastor, and he served on the presidential task force for five different U.S. presidents, um, and uh, when he planted his church in Los Angeles, he says that there are usually three ways that people can help uh, the poor and vulnerable uh, in need, and that's one, relief, uh, two, development, and three, reform. I'm just going to talk about the first two for now. Um, but what he says about, is about this. You know, when he planted his church, a single mother started coming out with four children. And it became clear to the church that she had severe financial problems. Um, you know, she needed a ride. You know, uh, she didn't know where, you know, she, people, when people asked her, where are you, you going to eat? She never knew. And so, you know, people in the, several people in the church decided to help her out. And they offered to give her funds to pay off her bills. Um, this is what you call relief. But people quickly realized that they needed to walk with her through a process of development, right? Which included having a plan to acquire certain skills, uh, to acquire a solid job, right? She needed help to develop discipline. Her children needed big brothers and big sisters, tutors and mentors to give them the support and love that they needed. In other words, this family needed more than financial relief. They needed love. They needed friendship. They needed counseling, which helped them through this personal time of crisis. And uh, right now at our church, uh, we have a justice and compassion team. Um, and we're getting our feet wet this year with the first step of providing relief. Uh, after service during lunch, you know, we're going to put together homeless care packages uh, to hand out as we go to work or run an errand or whatever, because 
I don't know about you, but every time I get into my car, I probably see at least one homeless person in the Bay Area, right? Um, and then on March 7th, we're going to go bring food to a homeless shelter and serve the residents there, another sort of a form of relief. We're trying to partner with shelters and public schools and other nonprofits to but not only provide relief, but to also volunteer our time and talent and treasure to help with some development, right? Uh, not only to provide supplies for a classroom, but maybe to tutor students who can't afford tutoring, to tutor students whose parents work night shifts, to tutor students whose parents may not speak English. You know, there's going to be opportunities, a lot of opportunities for us to teach ESL to parents, Opportunities to provide simple job training skills like Microsoft Office, email. Opportunities to love and to counsel and to befriend. Now there's a balance to strike, right, when, when Christians and churches get involved with doing justice. For example, you know, we don't just do justice just to get them to church, right? That, that's... that's um, you know, that's sort of like a, uh, you know, it's more of like a contract. But at the same time, right, there's no better way for Christians to lay a foundation for the gospel than de- by doing justice, right? We took a look at, uh, you know, that quote from Emperor Julian in the Roman Empire, and, and you know, people are people, the, the, the times, uh, lots of change, but not this, right? There is no greater foundation uh, for sharing the gospel than by doing justice, loving the poor, caring for the needy. Right? Evangelism is the most basic, radical ministry possible to a human being. Right? This is because the eternal is more significant than the temporal. Right? If there is a God and if life with him for eternity is based on having a saving relationship with him, then the most loving thing anyone can do for one's neighbor is to help him or her to come to a saving faith in that God. But if neighbors see church members loving their city through astonishing sacrificial deeds of justice and compassion, then they'll be much more open to the church's message. right? And therefore the church should carry out ministries of relief and some development in our cities as an organic and crucial way to show the world God's character and to love the people that we're evangelizing to, to love the people that we're discipling. And, you know, no person or organization or church has the time, uh, talent, or treasure to do all the justice in the world. And that's why our church is heavily leaning on uh, numerous nonprofits, right, Uh, they're the experts, they know what they're doing, Um, they're shouldering this burden, and so we come in and we ask them, how can we help? Job 29, verse 14, um, he says this, I put on righteousness as my clothing, justice is my robe. Isn't Isn't that amazing? He's saying justice is... I put on justice where every single day when I wake up. I'm looking to see how I can help someone. Right? Justice requires this constant and sustained reflection on life. 
it's, it's this constant understanding that we have the privilege and the responsibility uh, to be our brother's keeper. It's one of the main things God is identified with. It's the one thing he takes up. Uh, it's, it's, it's a part of him. And as we come to faith, we become a part of him. His justice becomes a part of us, becomes a part of the church. Moving to our last point. In 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 8, verse 9, Paul says this. He says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. What is Paul saying? Well, what Paul is saying is Jesus is the Son of God. And before he became flesh, he was the king of the entire universe. He was wealthy. He was powerful. He was comfortable. But in his incarnation, we see how God himself identifies with the poor and the marginal literally. If you read the Gospels, Jesus was born in a manger, in a farm, where the animals slept, where the animals um, defecated. He was born in a feed trough, and he was born to a very poor family. His dad was a carpenter, and he was born in a very poor village, Nazareth, no one ever really heard of that city, and no one really ever went there. And when his parents brought him to the temple to give thanks and offerings, they were so poor that they cannot afford a lamb, and therefore they, they fell under the exception clause for the poorest class of people to offer two pigeons. And through Jesus' life, he did so much justice and compassion to the poor that in Luke chapter 9, verse 58, Jesus said, Foxes have holes, birds have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He was constantly pushing his body to the limit so that he could reach one more person, reach one more city, one more family. And at the end of Jesus' life, he had crowds and crowds of people following him. He was so popular, so famous, and yet he still did not have any money. That when he rode into Jerusalem, he couldn't afford his own horse. He had to borrow a donkey. Have you ever seen a grown man ride a donkey? His feet kind of drags along the ground. And he spent his last evening with his disciples in a borrowed room. And when he died, Joseph of Arimathea laid him in a borrowed tomb. Jesus died naked and penniless. He had little the world valued, and the little that he had was taken from him. And this is what Paul means when he says, Jesus, who was rich, became poor, so that we who are poor can become rich. 
But Jesus didn't just identify with the poor. He also identified with those who were denied justice. Jesus was arrested for committing no crime. He was beaten in the middle of his trial. He was given no lawyer. The high priest, who was to be the judge, was prejudiced, so he took up the prosecution. The governor, Pontius Pilate, said Jesus committed no crime, but he was a coward, so he caved to the mob. Jesus was then tortured cruelly and put to death. In Luke chapter 23, verses 34 to 35, the protectors of the law put an innocent man to death. I have it here on the next slide. Oh, they're right there. They were supposed to protect Jesus, but instead they tortured him, they put him to death, and then they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching, but the rulers, the people who were supposed to protect him, scoffed at him, saying, he saved others, let him save himself if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. In all these ways, Jesus identifies with those who have been wrongfully imprisoned, robbed of their possessions, tortured, and slaughtered. Here is Jesus, God himself, who knows what it feels like to be a victim of injustice, to stand up to power, but to face a corrupt system and be killed for it. Some people say, um, you know, I can't believe in God when I see all the injustice in the world. But friends, here on the cross, we see Jesus take on the ultimate injustice himself. And we ought to look at him and say, how could this happen? Why would he allow this to happen? And the reason that is, it was for us. On the cross, Jesus, who deserved justice, got condemnation so that we who deserve condemnation for our sins can stand before the justice of God and declare innocence. Be pardoned by the blood of Christ. Right? Jesus comes into our dangerous world and he saves us not because it was an inconvenience to him, but because at the cost of his life, so that one day we would be reunited to God, and one day in Christ and through Christ, all the wrongs will be made right. So friends, if, if you see that you have been pursued, you have been fought for, you have been forgiven, you have been sacrificed for graciously, you are even now being prayed for by Jesus, you have been loved by someone that we constantly shorthand, disregard, ignore and hurt. When you understand that, when you understand that God pursued you in your own poverty, in your own rebellion, only then will you be able to look out into the world, look out to those who need help, look out to the poor, and go after them. Love kindness. Do justice. 
Jesus, thank you for accomplishing this first for us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, um, you know, uh, I think times like this remind us that a lot of the times when we, when we come to the Bible, when we come to maybe the church or Christianity or our faith, uh, we read with a bias. And uh, we read with what immediately might fulfill our felt need. Maybe it's a job. So we go to the verses that say, ask and you shall receive. Maybe it's we're feeling tremendously weak and we don't know how to get through this season of life, whether it's our workplace or our family or our physical well-being. And so we look at a verse like Philippians 4 and say, all things are possible through God who strengthens me. We realize in moments like this when we take time just to pause and reflect over a core value of yours like justice and compassion, just how thoroughly it bleeds through the words of scripture and how thoroughly it is rooted and grounded in the love and the cross of Christ in his incarnation and in his death. And thank you for pricking us again and waking us up. And yes, Lord, we, we all need help. We all are suffering in one way or another and looking to you for healing and forgiveness and strength and hope, and life and joy and peace. But at the same time, there are so many out there that feel the same way. And you, you not only come to feed us and to love on us, but you charge us to develop amongst the, ourselves a culture of justice and compassion, to do both, to feed ourselves and to feed each other. So we confess that, Father, we have not done this as we ought to have, so Father, forgive us. And we know what that forgiveness looks like and how great that is in the incarnation and death of Christ. Father, would you allow that to cleanse our souls and by the power of the Holy Spirit to penetrate our hearts and to give us the strength and the hope and the love to be our brother's keeper, to be mindful, to put on justice as our robe. You are the God who put on justice and you put on kindness for us. So Father, help us do that for each other. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.